0: looking at some of the details in the surrounding verses but Matthew 2 verses 1 and 2 as our text we'll read those one more time god's word for us this afternoon now after jesus was born in bethlehem of judea in the days of herod the king behold wise men from the east came to jerusalem saying where is he who has been born King of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. After the sermon, we hope to respond by singing from uh, the proposed hymn in our proposed booklets, Joy to the World, the Lord is come. Let Earth receive her king. After the sermon of our Lord Jesus Christ as we get close to tomorrow morning, celebrating Christmas, the opportunity then to bring God's Word to you from one of the Gospels' accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ and what happens afterwards. There's a lot of different accounts, different details that are given by different authors in the Bible. The Gospel of Luke focuses on the shepherds in the fields and also Caesar's, uh, his decree, To have a census taken, there's a contrast between Caesar and Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The Gospel of John, John doesn't even really go into any details of a birth. He speaks very philosophically about the word becoming flesh and making his dwelling among us. The word being God and having been around before the world was created. Mark keeps it very simple as well. But the reason I've, I've chosen Matthew to focus on this afternoon is especially considering what we looked at this morning in the reign of Solomon. And even if you go through the history of Israel and the kings that they had in the past, David, Solomon, later on the, the split kingdoms, there was Hezekiah and Josiah and Ahaz and Ahab and the many different kings that the kids learn as they go through the history of Israel. What all those kings had in common was that they, like Solomon, fell short of what Israel needed for a king. And it is interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically in the verses that we're looking at this afternoon, that it's Solomon and some of the things that happened in Solomon's reign, remember that was the golden age of Israel in Solomon's reign, some of those things come back already when Jesus Christ is born. So that already, just even in his birth and the response to his birth, you can start to see that the greater Solomon has come. The great king that we so desperately needed. Now, of course, you would hope that when someone greater than Solomon is here, that people would react with open arms. And some people do. We can read of them in Matthew chapter 2. Some people are rejoicing with exceedingly great joy. Uh, but others are not. King Herod, Jerusalem, and many others are not all that excited about this king to come. And that's why there is a call for us, even in these verses, when we hear that the king has come, to receive that with great joy, to sing those words of the hymn that we're about to sing after the sermon, Joy to the World, let earth receive her king, and may we do that well. So that will be our theme for this afternoon as we look at the contrast or maybe just the comparison of this king and the description here of his wisdom, his power, and his glory all compared to Solomon. His wisdom, his power, and his glory and the invitation then to receive the greater king now, today. So let's look first of all at our first point the wisdom of this king. Solomon, of course, was known for his great wisdom. That's one of the things that people know about him. He wrote the Proverbs, which are a book of wisdom. And people came and, and they wanted to, to hear from him, advice, uh, words, sayings, teachings, so that they would glean from his wisdom. He was the one that received, as we talked about this morning, the wise and listening heart in 1 Kings chapter 3. But as you look... Right away at our text, the word wisdom or wise comes up, and it's really wisdom that sets Jesus Christ apart as a special king. We read right away that he's born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And then the first detail is that wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. It's as if people from foreign countries like foreign dignitaries are coming to congratulate the new royal family with the birth of their son if you look at the royal family in britain probably the most royal famous royal family today when A child is born in that family. There are all kinds of congratulations sent from all kinds of different monarchies and different countries. People come to congratulate the parents, to congratulate the royal family. And it's like that is happening, except these are wise men from the East coming to do that. And so they're not just any foreign dignitary. They are magi or magi or magi, however you want to say it. Uh, There's a bunch of different English pronunciations of the Greek word magus. But either way, they are sages. They are people that are studied, that they know astrology, they know all kinds of different truths about this world, and they came from the eastern lands. We, we don't know specifically where, but that's not really the point of this. What seems to be the illusion here, especially when you take a look at the gifts that they later bring and present to Jesus in verse 11, the allusion here is to a very similar arrival in Jerusalem of another foreign dignitary, the queen of Sheba, who was from a distant land in 1 Kings 10. Because if you look at that account in 1 Kings 10, uh, the queen of Sheba, she brought gifts herself. The wise men brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. It lists in 1 Kings 10, verse 10, that the queen of Sheba produced gold and a great quantity of spices that she gave to King Solomon when she saw his wisdom. And there are actually many prophecies in the Old Testament, before Jesus' time, but after Solomon's time. Prophecies that picked up on what happened when the queen of Sheba came. Basically saying that when the Messiah comes, something even greater is going to happen in terms of other nations coming to give him praise, and to give him honor. So even the song that Solomon wrote in the book of Psalms, Psalm 72, mentions that the king who is going to be on the throne, that tributes and gifts will be brought to him, the gold of Sheba. But then later on, Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 60, mentions that the wealth of the nations and gold and frankincense are going to be brought by the kings of the nations to the Messiah's Uh, Honor. They will show honor to him. And that's what we see happening in Matthew chapter 2. These wise men arriving are a sign that the great Messiah has come. But of course, we can can actually take that a step further. Not, Not just that they're fulfilling Isaiah 60 and looking like the Queen of Sheba in the giving of their gifts, but there's something greater going on. Because when the Queen of Sheba came... She wanted to question Solomon about how he was ruling. She wanted to ask him questions about all kinds of different topics and look at the organization of his kingdom, how he was administering everything going on. And after she asked all those questions, then she reflected and said, Wow, you really are wise. And the way that you're running the kingdom is is way greater than the way that people described it to me. And that was well and good. And she gave gifts after that. But here... In Matthew 2, we have wise men, and they are honoring and giving gifts to a child. It's as if they're acknowledging already while he is a child that he is the greater, that he is the one that is wiser than them. And they are, by all accounts, wise men. In fact, go back to Solomon's day, 1 Kings 4 it says that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people in the East, and also other places. But it specifically mentions he was wiser than all the people of the East, and it even lists some of the people he was wiser than he was wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Heman and Chalcol and Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. That was Solomon. And now here, Jesus Christ is simply born. And these wise men are coming to him and acknowledging him with great honors because they are saying that he is greater. It more than justifies that claim of Jesus in Matthew 12 that I mentioned earlier, but I'll read the whole verse this time this afternoon. Matthew 12, verse 42. Jesus is condemning his current generation who aren't receiving him very well. He says, the queen of the south will rise on the day of judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This child has these people coming to him to acknowledge his great wisdom. Because he's wiser than them. And yet, there will be some people that won't realize it. And of course, we find out later in Scripture more about the details of just how wise Jesus Christ is. Uh, How wise is Jesus Christ? Paul says that he's wiser than Solomon himself. Paul says that he is actually wisdom itself. Wisdom from God. In other words, you can actually define what wisdom looks like by looking at wisdom itself, Jesus Christ, wisdom in the flesh. He knows what's right and what's wrong. He is able to determine what is the wise course of action, even in difficult circumstances. Solomon had to deal with two prostitutes and no witnesses uh, with this one child that was killed and the other child that both were claiming was theirs. And he was able to discern the right way to go. Well, Jesus is showing himself already, even as a child, to be even greater in wisdom because he is wisdom itself. It's as if Christ's spirit was given for a time to King Solomon to be able to make decisions because Christ is wisdom itself. Of course, we also read later in Scripture that Jesus was able to bring about salvation for Jews and for Greeks, for all kinds of people, even though the way that Jesus lived and died and then rose again didn't seem very wise to people. Paul says that actually it was uh, a stumbling block to Jews. They thought their Messiah, if their Messiah was going to be wise, that he would never have to die, that he would reign and that he would dominate. That was a stumbling block to them. It was also foolishness. The opposite of wisdom to non-Jews, to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. For him to have to go through death and then rise again. They didn't think that our bodies were that worthwhile, that they would need to rise again. That we would want to conquer death with our bodies. That an immortal body would be worthwhile. And yet Jesus in his wisdom shows that this is the way God created the world to be. Our bodies are not just an afterthought. They are important. They're going to rise again and they're going to live eternally with God. It was foolishness to Gentiles, but he, in his wisdom, showed what this world is missing. He provides a critique to every single culture in everything that he does. That is the great wisdom of Jesus Christ. Of course, in Matthew 2, there's a a warning connected to all of this. The wise men, even in our short text, are already recognizing the wisdom of Jesus Christ. But nobody in Jerusalem did. That was Jesus' point when he said that the queen of the south would rise up to condemn this present generation. They weren't receiving this king with joy. They were accusing him. They were condemning him. They didn't want him. Even though wisdom itself was here. If Solomon, people came from afar to give him honor... Now wisdom itself is here, and the current generation doesn't see it. And that's not just a condemnation of that generation, brothers and sisters. We have to watch out for that same sort of of attitude ourselves. Uh, We have... You could, in some senses, say even more to work with. We have all of Christ's wisdom recorded for us in the scriptures. It's sufficiently for us to understand who he is and the wisdom that he has. We're told of all the things that he has done and why it's wise compared to the foolishness of this world. And yet, how often don't we find ourselves turning to the wisdom of this world for advice? Whether it's in how we run our businesses, simply for for money gain, for profit. Or how we get our lives in order by pulling up our socks and finding inner purpose or reading the best self-help books out there. Or how we can other times just treat others that we have relationships with, we can treat them as uh, something useful for us. Instruments for how we're going to gain our own happiness and fulfill ourselves. How often don't we find ourselves preferring to learn from our colleagues at work or our neighbors in town or our our screens and the influencers on our screens rather than let the wisdom of Jesus Christ dwell in us richly. It's a wisdom that has always proven to show the weaknesses in every human culture that has ever existed, whether it was the Greek culture of his day or even the the sub-Jewish culture of his day, the stumbling block and the foolishness or whether it was later on in the, in the time of the Middle Ages or even in the Enlightenment period when people were starting to, to grow in understanding and study more deeply. Every single time you can look to Jesus Christ and he can show the flaws in our thinking. All wisdom, says Hymn 79 in our Book of Praise, all wisdom dwells in you, Jesus Christ. We need to look to him, know his wisdom. That helps us to analyze, to critique, to be able to sift through the lack of wisdom that this world so often offers. To call for us to receive this great king and all that he stands for in our hearts. Thankfully, in his wisdom, he's given himself up to provide forgiveness for our foolishness our head-in-the-sand habits of avoiding Him. That just proves, His willingness to give Himself in that way, that just proves His wisdom is so much greater than ours. And already here in Matthew 2, it's on display with the honor that He's receiving. But wisdom isn't the the only characteristic mentioned here. That's our first point was wisdom. But we move to our second point, His great power could really categorize it into two displays of power here in our text. The first is his power over Herod, and the second is his power over creation. And we get that from verse 2. His power over Herod and his power over creation. First of all, his power over Herod, just reading verse 2 where it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Uh, One commentator said it this way. If somebody comes into a royal palace and into the throne room and simply says, where's the king? That tends to be a bit disconcerting. Uh, It should be pretty obvious where the king is. When when you're asking that question, you're hinting at the fact that the person who's on the throne shouldn't be on the throne or will not be on the throne for long. Uh, That there must be someone who is truly the king compared to the one sitting on the throne at that time. And so you can read in the following verses, verse 3, when Herod the king, it mentions very clearly, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And it's a somewhat famous line uh, in the sense that King Herod soon shows himself to be a whole lot more than just troubled at hearing this. He goes on a, a witch hunt. He goes and and he's willing to massacre a whole age group of children in a small town in Bethlehem, a small town south of Jerusalem, to try and prevent what seems to be a possible challenger to the throne. And this is, if you read in the history books, this is just a, a common display of a king, Herod, who loved his power and was also extremely paranoid of anybody trying to take that power. He even... He was even willing to go to the lengths of killing his own family members if he thought that they were a dangerous threat to him in any sort of way, Uh, something which he thought was happening unusually often. So when he finds out that this child is born in Bethlehem, at least that's where it's supposed to be born, and when his first plan to get the wise men to tell him where the child is doesn't succeed, he commands that slaughter Of innocent children, but even those powerful attempts by Herod can't stop this child, can it? And we would admit from the text that it's not that it's like Jesus as a child here is miraculous and able to kind of avoid the attempts of of Herod and his whole army to try and kill Jesus. It's not like he's good at, at hiding or something like that. No. It's not even Joseph and Mary, his parents, showing some incredible ingenious in stopping Herod. No, it actually comes down to dreams. Dreams, two dreams. uh, One to the wise men, and then one also to Joseph in verse 13. Appearing to Joseph in a dream, an angel of the Lord. Which points to the fact that God is preserving this child. God is on this child's side. Which also tells you, because when God determines something, no one's going to stop it. No king and no army, no matter how powerful, is going to stop God who is on Jesus' side. We actually sang of that this morning in Psalm 2. Why are the nations conspiring? Why do they rage? What's the point? God looks in heaven and laughs at their almost pathetic attempts to try get in the way of his plan. Herod, your plan is useless. It's not going to help. God is on Jesus' side here, God the Father. He has, Jesus has more power on his side than Herod could ever muster. But that, that was just the first display of power, a display of power over Herod. There's also a display of power over creation here. A display of power over creation. Again, verse 2. Where is he who is born, has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We saw his star when it rose. Here are these wise men who know their astrology, who are able to study the stars and notice when something special happens. They even describe it as his star. And later on, they see this star uh, seemingly rising and going before them until it rests over the place where the child was how this is possible we do not know clearly a miracle something special in terms of the heavens being controlled by well who else could it possibly be but the divine one who is in control of the heavens god God must be involved in setting this star in the sky. God must be involved in having this star guide the wise men to the place where this child was. God is, in that sense, arranging creation to display the importance of this child being born. you got to look at it this way. If heaven and earth are moved to commemorate this child coming into the world, then who on earth is going to stop him In accomplishing his plans. When you read through uh, 1 Kings. In reference to Solomon. You can only marvel at that time. The amount of power that Solomon had. He had dominance over all kinds of kings. And it led to a time of great peace for Israel. So many subjects. So many people bringing tribute And God even came to Solomon in a dream twice and gave him great promises. Shows the importance of Solomon. Shows how much God was on his side. But this child in Bethlehem is even different from Solomon. It's the pattern we see. Creation moves for him. Actually, Balaam, the prophet Balaam, in Numbers 24, as he's blessing Israel instead of cursing them, uh, he even says at some point, at one point, that a star would rise out of Jacob, and a scepter out of Israel. And there, the star and the scepter together are a symbol. The scepter is a symbol of power. So when the star rises, it's a description of the power that this uh, one who's going to rise uh, is going to have. It describes. Balaam goes on to describe this star this scepter, conquering Moab and Edom. And sure, you could say David fulfilled that prophecy in one way, and even Solomon in having all these people subject to him, conquering those lands. But this is the son of David, and and this son of David, Jesus Christ, would go so much further, wouldn't he? he? He wouldn't just save his people from neighboring enemies. He would... As Matthew 1, we read, verse 21 says, he'll save his people from their sins. He's going to conquer greater enemies. Sin, Satan himself, he is going to conquer the greatest problem that the human race has ever had. When sin came into the world, death came with it. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the major problem that we've been dealing with is the punishment from our sin. Mortal bodies and the pain and the agony that comes from mortal bodies. Losing people we love. uh, Having to deal with our own limitedness because of our sin and the death that's coming. And Jesus comes and he conquers sin. He conquers Satan. He conquers death itself. That's the power of this king of the Jews. When he was a child already, no one could stop him because his heavenly father was on his side. How much more so than when he he faces death itself and comes through the other side and now sits at his father's right hand as king. That position of greatest power. If heaven and earth move to greet him as he entered this world, then he will continue to move heaven and earth to make sure that his kingdom continues to grow, continues to expand, continues to conquer sin and Satan and death. You, as servants of the king, who are citizens of his kingdom, his heavenly kingdom, you have that kind of power on your side. And we can often find ourselves bemoaning the fact that we have to, to fight uh, to keep the truth of Christmas alive in our culture. And it truly is washed over so often with the, the good feels of gift-giving and and family traditions and big meals. And we could bemoan other aspects of where our culture is at, where our country is at, where the world is at. But when we realize Jesus Christ, with his immense power on the throne. What, what reason do we have to ever truly despair? The king of the Jews is now king of the world. He has come and he is reigning. And no countries, no dictators, no regimes, no behind-the-scenes uh, behind string pullers. I shouldn't write tongue twisters in my sermons. Uh, not the devil himself will be able to dislodge this king from the throne. He's king. He has ultimate power. King Solomon fell, and the nation of Israel fell with him. It started to crumble. He didn't last. Why? Because his heart, as we looked at this morning, his heart turned away. It didn't last. It didn't have the power to last. But here is a king who has the power to endure who proved that throughout his whole life and has continued to prove that he will move his plan forward and nothing's going to stop him he's going to last he was the king we needed and all the signs and special protections in Matthew 2 only prove that he was greater than any who came before him and no one has matched him since he is the king of kings And knowing that he has that kind of power, it should humble us to think that we often find ourselves drawn to the powerful of our world. Those who are powerful because of maybe how much money they have. We look up to someone like Elon Musk. Or people who are really powerful with their arguments. So we look up to someone like like Jordan Peterson. Or Somebody who just has a a powerful position, the leaders of the different governments and all the influence that they have. We think if we can get into those positions or change those people, then we'll be able to be more in control and, and things will go the right way. But to desire to be in control, brothers and sisters, is that really what the King of Kings needs from his people? All the money, all the arguments. All the influence in the world cannot change souls. That is only Christ through his spirit. He is the power we need to revere before anything else. It's only as we work within his power that we are in that sense at peace and full of hope. Because he's going to do what needs to be done. And it's because he has that power as well that he also deserves what we'll look at in our final point, the greatest glory. It's also the last point from our text as you look at the very end there. Uh, well, In a sense, even before we get there, <clears throat> in a sense there's already glory uh, for this child given what we talked about in the first two points. Uh, the fact that these wise men are coming from the east to give him gifts... Uh, To honor him, it shows that he deserves glory. Uh, And then same with the the powerlessness of Herod to stop him, and the fact that the whole universe is revolving around the birth of this child, that only adds to his glory, to the praise that he deserves. Uh, But the final words of our text, they just add the, the defining element. For we saw his star when it rose... Wise men talking, and we have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. Solomon had great power, great wisdom, was famous across the world, and a lot of people praised him. But to worship him was not something the Bible ever uses as a word to to say about him. That doesn't happen. But these wise men come, and they recognize just by the the star that was in the sky that this young child deserved worship. We've come to worship him. There is something special, divine going on here. And when they see him in Bethlehem, we read about it later on in the verses outside our text. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. And they give him the gifts. It shows that this was everything they expected and more. Of course, we have in mind uh, the the cradle scene, perhaps, that we often see uh, around, uh, given the time period, it's probably important to note that Jesus is probably not an infant anymore at this point, however long it would take for these wise men to come from the east after seeing the star when he was born. uh, At least there aren't camels around necessarily, and there probably aren't uh, shepherds with these wise men anymore. Those shepherds are long gone. But regardless of that, these wise men do come to this child and they begin worshiping him and giving him gifts even the fact that they receive a dream telling them not to tell King Herod, it would have been another display to them that this child was ever so special, ever so deserving of worship. And this isn't the only place in the Gospels where Jesus is worshipped. Others would end up seeing it as well. There are instances of his miracles uh, where after his miracles, people bow down and worship him and he doesn't stop them. When it comes to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he doesn't stop people crying out their praises to him and singing Hosanna. But right near the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the last scene of Jesus, this is, you could say, the first scene of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. The very last scene, Matthew 28, verse 9, Jesus meets the women who had been at his empty tomb, and he greets them. And they come up, and they take hold of his feet, and they worship him. And then right at the end, the Great Commission, that famous, uh, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. When the disciples see Jesus Christ, right at the end, it says in Matthew 28, verse 17, they come in and when they saw him, they worshipped him. And this is why we can go so far on Christmas as worshipping him ourselves. He's not just a human that we're celebrating this is the great god man jesus christ the son of god come down taking on human flesh to be the greater wisdom to be the more powerful king to be the perfectly righteous savior bringing a greater peace through a greater sacrifice doing all things greater than anyone else has done before i could go on and on of the things that he did He alone is worthy of our devotion, our complete life given over to his service and to his praise. All our work being done for him, all our thoughts being held captive for him, all our efforts for him. He together with the Father and the Spirit have done wondrous things. So that's what he deserves, the greater glory. People in Jerusalem and Bethlehem, well, sadly, they didn't see it right away. All Jerusalem is troubled along with Herod. They, in a sense, say they realized trouble was brewing. If somebody's going to challenge King Herod, that's not going to lead to peace. They would like things to just kind of stay the way they are, it seems. They ignore him, and many others rejected him. They didn't see it right away. And many today, too, are tempted to ignore him as well. You can have all kinds of people who will take up a Christmas carol on their lips, even Christmas hymns, and sing it on the radio, and sing of Jesus Christ Emmanuel, and all these different songs that that speak somewhat detailed of the incarnate Son of God. But they aren't receiving in their hearts the King that they so desperately need. And we can be in danger of that ourselves. To not acknowledge how much we need him. How much we needed his coming into this world. How much we needed his wisdom and his power and his glory. How we so often don't give him the glory, the worship that he deserves. May it be our prayer as we celebrate Christmas tomorrow. And really... Every day that we live, may it be our prayer that the earth would indeed receive her rightful king with wide open hearts so that he would indeed receive the worship and the praise and the glory that he deserves. He is the king of glory, Jesus Christ. Amen.